Chapter One, Part Three of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles Mackay. Volume Two, Chapter One The Crusades, Part Three. On his arrival at Constantinople, where he found Walter the Penniless awaiting him, he was hospitably received by the Emperor Alexius. It might have been expected that the sad reverses they had undergone would have taught his followers common prudence, but unhappily for them their turbulence and love of plunder was not to be restrained. Although they were surrounded by friends, by whom all their wants were liberally supplied, they could not refrain from rapine. In vain the hermit exhorted them to tranquillity. He possessed no more power over them in subduing their passions than the obscurest soldier of the host. They set fire to several public buildings in Constantinople out of pure mischief, and stripped the lead from the roofs of the churches, which they afterwards sold for old metal in the Perlaeus of the city. From this time may be dated the aversion which the Emperor Alexius entertained for the Crusaders, and which was afterwards manifested in all his actions, even when he had to deal with the chivalrous and more honourable armies which arrived after the hermit. He seems to have imagined that the Turks themselves were enemies less formidable to his power than these outpourings of the refuse of Europe. He soon found a pretext to hurry them into Asia Minor. Peter crossed the Bosphorus with Walter, but the excesses of his followers were such that, despairing of accomplishing any good end by remaining at their head, he left them to themselves, and returned to Constantinople on the pretext of making arrangements with the government of Alexius for a proper supply of provisions. The crusaders, forgetting that they were in the enemy's country, and that union above all things was desirable, gave themselves up to dissensions. Violent disputes arose between the Lombards and Normans commanded by Walter the Penniless, and the Franks and Germans led out by Peter. The latter separated themselves from the former, and choosing for their leader one Rinaldo, or Reinhold, marched forward and took possession of the fortress of Exeragorgon. The Sultan Soliman was on the alert with a superior force. A party of crusaders which had been detached from the fort and stationed at a little distance as an ambuscade were surprised and cut to pieces, and Exeragorgon invested on all sides. The siege was protracted for eight days, during which the Christians suffered the most acute agony from the want of water. It is hard to say how long the hope of succor or the energy of despair would have enabled them to hold out. Their treacherous leader cut the matter short by renouncing the Christian faith, and delivering up the fort into the hands of the Sultan. He was followed by two or three of his officers. All the rest, refusing to become Mahometans, were ruthlessly put to the sword. Thus perished the last wretched remnant of the vast multitude which had traversed Europe with Peter the Hermit. Walter the Penniless and his multitude met as miserable a fate. On the news of the disasters of Exeragorgon, they demanded to be led instantly against the Turks. Walter, who only wanted good soldiers to have made a good general, was cooler of head and saw all the dangers of such a step. 
his force was wholly insufficient to make any decisive movement in a country where the enemy was so much superior, and where in case of defeat he had no secure position to fall back upon, and he therefore expressed his opinion against advancing until the arrival of reinforcements. This prudent counsel found no favor. The army loudly expressed their dissatisfaction at their chief and prepared to march forward without him. Upon this the brave Walter put himself at their head and rushed to destruction. Proceeding towards Nice, the modern Iznik, he was intercepted by the army of the Sultan. A fierce battle ensued in which the Turks made fearful havoc. Out of twenty-five thousand Christians, twenty-two thousand were slain, and among them Gautier himself, who fell pierced by seven mortal wounds. The remaining three thousand retreated upon Civitat, where they entrenched themselves. Disgusted as was Peter the Hermit at the excesses of the multitude, who at his call had forsaken Europe, his heart was moved with grief and pity at their misfortunes. All his former zeal revived. Casting himself at the feet of the Emperor Alexius, he implored him with tears in his eyes to send relief to the few survivors at Civitat. The emperor consented, and a force was sent which arrived just in time to save them from destruction. The Turks had beleaguered the place, and the crusaders were reduced to the last extremity. Negotiations were entered into, and the last three thousand were conducted in safety to Constantinople. Alexius had suffered too much by their former excesses to be very desirous of retaining them in his capital. He therefore caused them all to be disarmed, and furnishing each with a sum of money, he sent them back to their own country. While these events were taking place, fresh hordes were issuing from the woods and wilds of Germany all bent for the Holy Land. They were commanded by a fanatical priest named Gottschalk, who, like Gautier and Peter the Hermit, took his way through Hungary. History is extremely meagre in her details of the conduct and fate of this host, which amounted to at least one hundred thousand men. Robbery and murder seemed to have journeyed with them, and the poor Hungarians were rendered almost desperate by their numbers and rapacity. Carloman, the king of the country, made a bold effort to get rid of them, for the resentment of his people had arrived at such a height that nothing short of the total extermination of the crusaders would satisfy them. Gottschalk had to pay the penalty, not only for the ravages of his own bands, but for those of the swarms that had come before him. He and his army were induced, by some means or other, to lay down their arms. The savage Hungarians, seeing them thus defenseless, set upon them, and slaughtered them in great numbers. How many escaped their arrows, we are not informed, but not one of them reached Palestine. Other swarms under nameless leaders issued from Germany and France more brutal and more fanatic than any that had preceded them. Their fanaticism surpassed by far the wildest freaks of the followers of the hermit. In bands varying in number from one to five thousand, they traversed the country in all directions, bent upon plunder and massacre. They wore the symbol of the crusade upon their shoulders, but inveighed against the folly of proceeding to the Holy Land to destroy the Turks, while they left behind them so many Jews, the still more inveterate enemies of Christ. They swore fierce vengeance against this unhappy race, and murdered all the Hebrews they could lay their hands on, first subjecting them to the most horrible mutilation. According to the testimony of Albert Akensis, they lived among each other in the most shameless profligacy, 
and their vice was only exceeded by their superstition. Whenever they were in search of Jews, they were preceded by a goose and goat, which they believed to be holy and animated with divine power to discover the retreats of the unbelievers. In Germany alone they slaughtered more than a thousand Jews, notwithstanding all the efforts of the clergy to save them. So dreadful was the cruelty of their tormentors that great numbers of Jews committed self-destruction to avoid falling into their hands. Again it fell to the lot of the Hungarians to deliver Europe from these pests. When there were no more Jews to murder, the bands collected in one body and took the old route to the Holy Land, a route stained with the blood of three hundred thousand who had gone before and destined also to receive theirs. The number of these swarms has never been stated, but so many of them perished in Hungary that contemporary writers, despairing of giving any adequate idea of their multitudes, state that the fields were actually heaped with their corpses, and that for miles in its course the waters of the Danube were dyed with their blood. It was at Mersburg on the Danube that the greatest slaughter took place, a slaughter so great as to amount almost to extermination. The Hungarians for a while disputed the passage of the river, but the crusaders forced their way across, and attacking the city with the blind courage of madness, succeeded in making a breach in the walls. At this moment of victory an unaccountable fear came over them. Throwing down their arms they fled panic-stricken, no one knew why, and no one knew whither. The Hungarians followed sword in hand and cut them down without remorse and in such numbers that the stream of the Danube is said to have been choked up by their unburied bodies. This was the worst paroxysm of the madness of Europe, and this past, her chivalry stepped upon the scene. Men of cool heads, mature plans, and invincible courage stood forward to lead and direct the grand movement of Europe upon Asia. It is upon these men that romance has lavished her most admiring epithets, leaving to the condemnation of history the vileness and brutality of those who went before. Of these leaders the most distinguished were Godfrey of Bouillon, Duke of Lorraine, and Raymond, Count of Toulouse. Four other chiefs of the royal blood of Europe also assumed the cross and led each his army to the Holy Land. Hugh, Count of Vermandois, brother of the King of France, Robert, Duke of Normandy, the elder brother of William Rufus, Robert, Count of Flanders, and Bohemond, Prince of Tarentum, eldest son of the celebrated Robert Guiscard. These men were all tinged with the fanaticism of the age, but none of them acted entirely from religious motives. They were neither utterly reckless like Gautier, sans avoir, crazy like Peter the Hermit, nor brutal like Godshock the Monk, but possessed each of these qualities in a milder form, their valor being tempered by caution, their religious zeal by worldly views, and their ferocity by the spirit of chivalry. They saw whither led the torrent of the public will, and it being neither their wish nor their interest to stem it, they allowed themselves to be carried with it in the hope that it would lead them at last to a haven of aggrandizement. Around them congregated many minor chiefs, the flower of the nobility of France and Italy, with some few from Germany, England, and Spain. It was wisely conjectured that armies so numerous would find a difficulty in procuring provisions if they all journeyed by the same road. They therefore resolved to separate. Godfrey de Bouillon, proceeding through Hungary and Bulgaria, the Count of Toulouse through Lombardy and Dalmatia, 
and the other leaders through Apulia to Constantinople, where the several divisions were to reunite. The forces under these leaders have been variously estimated. The Princess Anna Comnenda talks of them of having been as numerous as the sands on the seashore or the stars in the firmament. Fulcher of Chartres is more satisfactory and exaggerates less magnificently when he states that all the divisions, when they had sat down before Nice and Bithynia, amounted to one hundred thousand horsemen and six hundred thousand men on foot, exclusive of the priests, women, and children. Gibbon is of opinion that this amount is exaggerated, but thinks the actual numbers did not fall very far short of the calculation. The Princess Anna afterwards gives the number of those under Godfrey of Bouillon as eighty thousand foot and horse, and supposing that each of the other chiefs led an army as numerous, the total would be nearly half a million. This must be over rather than under the mark, as the army of Godfrey of Bouillon was confessedly the largest when it set out, and suffered less by the way than any other. The Count of Vermandois was the first who set foot on the Grecian territory. On his arrival at Durazzo he was received with every mark of respect and courtesy by the agents of the Emperor, and his followers were abundantly supplied with provisions. Suddenly, however, and without cause assigned, the Count was arrested by order of the Emperor Alexius, and conveyed a close prisoner to Constantinople. Various motives have been assigned by different authors as having induced the Emperor to this treacherous and imprudent proceeding. By every writer he has been condemned for so flagrant a breach of hospitality and justice. The most probable reason for his conduct appears to be that suggested by Guibert of Nogen, who states that Alexius, fearful of the designs of the crusaders upon his throne, resorted to this extremity in order afterwards to force the Count to take the oath of allegiance to him, as the price of his liberation. The example of a prince so eminent as the brother of the King of France would, he thought, be readily followed by the other chiefs of the crusade. In the result he was woefully disappointed, as every man deserves to be who commits positive evil that doubtful good may ensue. But this line of policy accorded well enough with the narrow-mindedness of the emperor, who in the enervating atmosphere of his highly civilized and luxurious court dreaded the influx of the hardy and ambitious warriors of the West, and strove to nibble away by unworthy means the power which he had not energy enough to confront. If danger to himself had existed from the residence of the chiefs in his dominions, he might easily have averted it by the simple means of placing himself at the head of the European movement, and directing its energies to their avowed object the conquest of the Holy Land. But the emperor, instead of being, as he might have been, the lord and leader of the crusades, which he himself aided in no inconsiderable degree to suscitate by his embassies to the pope, became the slave of men who hated and despised him. No doubt the barbarous excesses of the followers of Gautier and Peter the Hermit made him look upon the whole body of them with disgust, but it was the disgust of a little mind which is glad of any excuse to palliate or justify its own irresolution and love of ease. Godfrey of Bouillon traversed Hungary in the most quiet and orderly manner. On his arrival at Meersburg he found the country strode with the mangled corpses of the Jew-killers, and demanded of the King of Hungary for what reason his people had set upon them. The latter detailed the atrocities they had committed, and made it so evident to Godfrey that the Hungarians had only acted in self-defence, that the high-minded leader declared himself satisfied and passed on without giving or receiving molestation. On his arrival at Philippopoli, 
he was informed for the first time of the imprisonment of the Count of Vermandois. He immediately sent messengers to the Emperor demanding the Count's release and threatening in case of refusal to lay waste the country with fire and sword. After waiting a day at Philippopoli, he marched on to Adrianople, where he was met by his messengers returning with the Emperor's refusal. Godfrey, the bravest and most determined of the leaders of the crusade, was not a man to swerve from his word, and the country was given up to pillage. Alexius here committed another blunder. No sooner did he learn from dire experience that the crusader was not an utterer of idle threats than he consented to the release of the prisoner. As he had been unjust in the first instance, he became cowardly in the second, and taught his enemies, for so the crusaders were forced to consider themselves, a lesson which they took care to remember to his cost, that they could hope nothing from his sense of justice, but everything from his fears. Godfrey remained encamped for several weeks in the neighborhood of Constantinople, to the great annoyance of Alexius, who sought by every means to extort from him the homage he had extorted from Vermandois. Sometimes he acted as if it opened and declared war with the crusaders, and sent his troops against them. Sometimes he refused to supply them with food and ordered the markets to be shut against them, while at other times he was all for peace and good will and sent costly presents to Godfrey. The honest, straightforward crusader was at last so wearied by his false kindness, and so pestered by his attacks, that allowing his indignation to get the better of his judgment, he gave up the country around Constantinople to be plundered by his soldiers. For six days the flames of the farmhouses around struck terror into the heart of Alexius. But as Godfrey anticipated, they convinced him of his error. Fearing that Constantinople itself would be the next object of attack, he sent messengers to demand an interview with Godfrey, offering at the same time to leave his son as a hostage for his good faith. Godfrey agreed to meet him, and whether to put an end to these useless dissensions, or for some other unexplained reason, he rendered homage to Alexius as his liege lord. He was thereupon loaded with honors, and according to a singular custom of that age, underwent the ceremony of the adoption of honor as son to the emperor. Godfrey and his brother Baudun de Bouillon conducted themselves with proper courtesy on this occasion, but were not able to restrain the insolence of their followers, who did not conceive themselves bound to keep any terms with a man so insincere as he had shown himself. One barbarous chieftain, Count Robert of Paris, carried his insolence so far as to seat himself upon the throne an insult which Alexius merely resented with a sneer, but which did not induce him to look with less mistrust upon the hordes that were still advancing. It is impossible, notwithstanding his treachery, to avoid feeling some compassion for the emperor, whose life at this time was rendered one long scene of misery by the presumption of the crusaders, and his not altogether groundless fears of the evil they might inflict upon him, should any untoward circumstance force the current of their ambition to the conquest of his empire. His daughter, Anna Komnimna, feelingly deplores his state of life at this time, and a learned German in a recent work describes it on the authority of the princess in the following manner. To avoid all occasion of offence to the crusaders, Alexius complied with all their whims and their on many occasions unreasonable demands, even at the expense of great bodily exertion at a time when he was suffering severely under the gout, which eventually brought him to his grave. 
No crusader who desired an interview with him was refused access. He listened with the utmost patience to the long-winded harangues which their loquacity or zeal continually wearied him with. He endured without expressing any impatience the unbecoming and haughty language which they permitted themselves to employ towards him, and severely reprimanded his officers when they undertook to defend the dignity of the imperial station from these rude assaults, for he trembled with apprehension at the slightest disputes lest they might become the occasion of greater evil. Though the counts often appeared before him with trains altogether unsuitable to their dignity, and to his, sometimes with an entire troop, which completely filled the royal apartment, the emperor held his peace. He listened to them at all hours, he often seated himself on his throne at daybreak to attend to their wishes and requests, and the evening twilight saw him still in the same place. Very frequently he could not snatch time to refresh himself with meat and drink. During many nights he could not obtain any repose, and was obliged to indulge in an unrefreshing sleep upon his throne, with his head resting on his hands. Even this slumber was continually disturbed by the appearance and harangues of some newly arrived rude knights. When all the courtiers wearied out by the efforts of the day and by night-watching could no longer keep themselves on their feet, and sank down exhausted, some upon benches and others on the floor, Alexius still rallied his strength to listen with seeming attention to the wearisome chatter of the Latins, that they might have no occasion or pretext for discontent. In such a state of fear and anxiety, how could Alexius comport himself with dignity and like an emperor? End of chapter 1, part 3 Recording by Philip Gould